Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Friday, November the 17th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics Podcast Wrap of the Week from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Pat Leahy and Jack Horgan-Jones are here. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Hugh. Hello, Hugh. Jack, it's still our favourite time of the year, uh, party conference season, and uh, the entire country, or at least County Kildare, is presumably on fete at the prospect of Fine Gael's special conference in Maynooth tomorrow. Uh, yes, special conference. Don't call it an Ardesh. Because you'll What's get, the difference? You, well, well, an Ardesh will have binding motions on policy and suggestions from uh, from various branches around the country about what to do, whereas a special conference is just a bunch of lads getting together for So it's for even the more meaningless than an Ardesh. There's a point, an interesting point here is that it yeah. was supposed to be a national conference, yeah. but it has been downgraded from being a national conference. Yeah. Itself a downgrading from... Ardesh status, and it was it's been downgraded as now a special conference, which means inter alia mm. that there is no live television uh, speech from Tisha, which you have told us in this studio before is really the main reason why the parties do these things. Well, I think what I've said is there's two two reasons why they do them. One is to talk to the voters via the the speech and the televised speech, and the other is to g up the troops. Um, uh, and uh, and so I I don't understand frankly, why Fine Gael are not featuring a, uh, a televised speech. They're just deciding to keep a low profile. Maybe they're nothing they to say. That's, that, that's hardly it, is it? Well, 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 what do they have to say? Because you, have, uh, if people want to find that out, they can read your extensive piece currently on irishtimes.com and it'll presumably be in tomorrow's print edition as, as, as well, so, Jack. Yeah, uh, yes, yesterday's not, yeah. news tomorrow in, in, in print edition. <laughs> um, and what were the Fine Gael members telling you about the state of the party? Well, they don't really speak with one voice uh, on the state of the party. Um, there is a a rump within Fine Gael, as there, in, as there is within all the government parties, uh, which uh, many of the members of the parliamentary party are eager to tell me we give too much emphasis to. But nonetheless, um, there is a group of TDs uh, who you know aren't overly enthused at the moment, and um, you know. There's a kind of flatness, is how one person described it to me, within the parliamentary party. Um, And it's not a party, as I write in in the paper tomorrow, it's not a party that is in kind of terminal decline. It's not a party where, you know, there's a risk of an imminent heave against the leader or anything like that. But what I think that people kind of generally can agree on is that it's kind of not it's struggling to an extent to to generate the kind of momentum that you would imagine a party in its position uh, would be hoping to see as we en- as we enter into a year where you're going to see at least two elections, if not three, in the form of a general election. So I think that they're looking for some kind of sense of energy, purpose, momentum, enthusiasm that doesn't seem to be there. And some people put that down to the structure of the parliamentary party at the moment. They say that roughly a third of the parliamentary party is not running again, stepping away from from politics. We've had a, a slate of, of high-profile retirements. Roughly a third another, another is... Another one this week, yeah. Yeah, a, a roughly a third is... That, is that other one was Deirdre Clune yep, this yeah. week, the MEP. 
yeah. number 53rd is of ministerial class and then there's a third kind of neither neither fish nor fowl either you know perhaps on the way up but more likely in a kind of state of, of perpetual limbo so that it's 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 not an identity crisis but certainly as I say a little bit lacking in energy so I think they're looking for something some kind of sense of purpose something that gives them that kind of geeing up that everyone needs heading into what is going to be a really crucial period not just for Fine Gael, but for all the, the big three and, political parties. And what would parties. that be? What would uh, give them that I, sense of purpose? But I think Keep the Fine Gael expected said. that kind of go forward momentum, yeah. if you like, to arrive this year. I think they thought that as soon as Leo Varadkar was back in the Taoiseach's office, that he would outshine Micheál Martin mm. and that Fine Gael would get that sense of forward momentum that it kind of really lacked for the last couple of years but it hasn't really manifested itself and I get I haven't read Jack's piece yet I'll be interested to do so but from talking to Fine Gael people I get a sense of amongst many of them a sort of ennui you know uh, about the state that they're in at the moment and it's certainly not what you would expect a party gearing up yeah. for a big election year. And when you, talk, when you talk to the grousers, of which there are many, uh, they, they talk about things like, like the budget and they identify kind of two problems with the budget. One, that it flared up and then disappeared and they, they criticise that there's been no kind of effort to own it thereafter, even though it was an, expans- an expansive budget that had a lot of goodies in it for everyone, that it slid off the agenda and was allowed to do so. And then... You know, they criticise things like the, the, the what they say is a failure to kind of put a Fine Gael wrapper on some of the big uh, interventions. So they point out that things like childcare, education, all those kind of things went through non-Fine Gael departments. And even though when uh, Leo Varadkar became Taoiseach again, he set up this child poverty unit, uh, all of which these policy interventions could feasibly be kind of clustered under, they say that there hasn't been a kind of an, an effort to sufficiently brand those interventions as, as, as Fine Gael ones. Is that, is that partly because Fianna Fáil chose to go for big spending agencies when the these departments were divvied out, yeah, divvied and, out and a few there's two, years there's ago? Two side, there's um, two sides to that coin. One is you have to own the housing crisis and so on mm. and, and the ongoing problems in health when it comes to general election time. But two, because... In the intervening period, you will have done stuff. This government will have done stuff under those headings. You get a list of stuff that you're able to say to voters come election time. Now, you know, the proof will be in the pudding as to whether voters actually believe that those have been effective interventions. But it certainly gives you a longer, as I say, list of stuff. Is this not, (laughs) though, ultimately just this ennui, this passivity, this entropy, is it not just a function of Fine Gael having been in power than they have, have been for in the history of the state, that there's a kind of a thing that happens with political parties when they're in government for, for a decade and a half almost, isn't it's it? It's a long time to be in power, you know, and it's the same thing has happened to, same thing happened to the Conservatives before Blair took over, the same thing again seems to be happening to the Conservatives now, you argue, you know, that's something similar is happening to Fine Gael. But of course, our, you know, the UK system is a binary system. You know, it's either Labour uh, or the uh, or the Conservatives in one shape or other, whereas our system is a lot more fractured. Coalition building, of course, is uh, an essential part of it. Um, you know, I suppose 
government is hard, you know, and government can make you really unpopular. And government, particularly in difficult times, such as Fine Gael experienced, at least in economic terms, for the first half of that 12 years, is it, ta- it takes its toll. The thing as well, and, and the comparison with British politics is an interesting one, because while there is a, an inevitability to the changing of the guard in a binary system, um, you know, swing voters will just eventually desert you and go to the other crowd. I think that there's still a very reasonable chance of, uh, of Fine Gael being in government after the next election, if not, in fact, leading that government. So despite the, uh, despite the, the abundance of ennui, uh, they may need to find that energy and purpose um, again, you know, because, because they, they, we were talking off air about how, how their polling performance in our, in our, uh, last two polls is not good on 18% and actually they're getting outperformed by Fianna Fáil everywhere apart from Dublin which is a really interesting one as well because the traditional narrative has been and this has been pushed by people in Fine Gael at times has been that the future of Irish politics will be about Fine Gael and Sinn Féin and that Fianna Fáil will become a, a, a junior partner to that to that event but, but they've I'm not, seen I'm not that sure th- for a long time and you know in case like the, the Dublin Bay South by-election a couple of years ago there was a sense that you know that those two parties those two polar opposites had a mutual interest in, in framing the narrative that way but but it's not turning out that way, certainly not in terms of the comparative profiles of Michael yeah, Martin. Then, then, and then, then, then also, won the election, won yeah. the by-election. Also, because Irish voters know their system and they know they have multifarious options mm-hmm. uh, other than simply Fianna Fáil, uh, uh, Fine Gael and Sinn Féin. And anyway, I think if you are to kind of subscribe to, you know, this idea of the, the new bifurcation in Irish politics being between Sinn Féin on the one side, it's not just Fine Gael on the other. It's Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil mm-hmm. who are now for all their historic differences and rivalries and that still exists, they are essentially, I think, the same political force. And and I think what you will see in the next election is a much higher degree of transfers between those two parties, mm. which is something that, you know, will work to their advantage and that, in some and that positions. Might lead into my next question, which is, it seems to me the challenge for Fine Gael, probably for all the parties, but for Fine Gael in this instance, is on the one hand to come up with a message, which you're saying here, which they haven't really come up with quite, uh, quite yet. And the other one is the nuts and bolts of politicking and electioneering and mm. campaigning and candidate selection, you know, with all these people leaving them slightly bereft in a number of constituencies. You mentioned Deirdre Clune. So, I mean, the, before there's a general election, there almost certainly the, the European election will come before that. Um, that's two prominent MEPs who, mm. who've stepped down. They're going to be under pressure in these constituencies. Do they have the, you know, the... Do they have the team on the bench to replace uh, Francis Fitzgerald and Deirdre Clune? Well, there's there's certainly a fair few of them gunning for the uh, the Dublin MEP nomination. There's there's a short list of, or maybe not not that short, of five or six names that have been circulating. So, Who would they be? Um, off the top of my head, uh, Senator Barry Ward, Senator Regina Doherty, uh, two former members of the Parliamentary Party, uh, their names are in circulation, former TD Noel Rock and interestingly former uh, TD Kate O'Connell, no friend of the current leadership. Um, and then perhaps most interesting, interestingly, at least two sitting TDs in the form of Colin Brophy, former Minister of State, and um, and Josepha Madigan, current Minister of State. So what would be, I think, most problematic slash interesting slash entertaining is if one of those sitting TDs was to get the nomination and then win it, because that means that from May of next year, you would have to have a by-election by December 
of next year and mm. government parties tend not to do well in by-elections and talking to people for this piece, more than one person conjured the the exact shape that the, the Fine Gael minority government faced into the 2020 uh, general election with, which was off the back of a couple of bad by-election results, no momentum, no enthusiasm, you know, on the back foot. And if that was to be replicated again, you know, if they were to lose a by-election or several by-elections or do badly in those by-elections uh, at the tail end of next year, and then they would inevitably have to have the election in the that first presumes, quarter of, course, of next year. of course, that they don't just call the election all for, this, for October, uh, November. All, but no, well, no, sorry, this is, this is the point that I'm, uh, through a circuitous route, arriving at. Uh, is I knew we'd get there all, eventually. All, all this shortens the odds on autumn next year, on an early budget, perhaps September, as they did last year, and then snap and go. Um, you'd have to think of a good reason to tell the electorate that you're doing so that. So they have a few candidates in Dublin anyway, regardless mm. of that interesting twisty turn. I mean, if it was Josefa Madigan, you know, any by-election, you'd think Fine Gael would be under pressure because it's just in the nature of, of by-elections anyway, isn't it? But um, but they've got to hold on to season So if Fine Munster, Gael were to pick any constituency in the country to have a by-election in, it Dublin would probably Rathdown. be Dublin Rathdown. Yeah. Right. Okay. And they still have a pretty good. But they were probably, probably their TDs are ministers. Yeah, and they still have a pretty good a shot at yeah. holding holding a seat in Dublin. You know, their their support. Certainly, is, she could make is, that is argument such, if, if people were saying one out of you know one out of how many seats is it? Four. Four seats. You know, Finnegall. You would have thought be pretty well positioned for a nice seat in the European Parliament for Josefa Madigan. I would think I would think she'd have a reasonable chance. Yeah, I mean, like she would probably step into the Francis Gerald shape. No, it's not guaranteed. It's not guaranteed. I mean, I come down to. You know, a Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael seat and Barry Andrews is there already for mm. Fianna Fáil. Mm. Because there will be, and we're delving into election speculation already, you know, oh, but, no, but there will be a Sinn Féin seat there. Mm. Yes, definitely. You know, for sure. And there isn't one there at the moment. Yeah. So it's quite surprisingly last time. So yeah. somebody is going to lose out. Well, Claire yeah. Daly's seat is in the mix also. So there's quite a lot quite a lot to look forward to in which we will do that in, in a lot of detail. But presumably then that's replicated at a somewhat smaller level at constituency, tall constituency level in places like Kerry and Donegal where, where TDs are stepping away and Fine Gael are You see, the, di- the, diff- the difference is that they know they're going to be trying to defend what is a Fine Gael seat without an incumbent, whereas a, a, a sitting ah, TD, right. nay minister, who would have committed to running again the next time out deprives them of, you know, most likely an incumbent in the next general and means, you know, that they'll have to fight the by-election. Is that us done with party conference season now? Is the excitement over? Thank God. Yes, I can't take any more excitement on my my weekends. Although one of our uh, Polcar colleagues was uh, cheering us all up in Athlone at Sinn Féin Ardèche last weekend by pointing out that every party is going to have uh, another Ardèche in the first couple of months of next year in advance of the local Still Europeans. beating heart. Um, on to another subject that's dominating on a lot of the headlines this week, which is the ongoing crisis in RTE. Uh, RTE's Director General, Kevin Backhurst, um, released his, his vision for, for the future of RTE. Mm. And pretty much immediately after that, the government announced that it would stump up this emergency funding for this year and next year. So it gets RTE off the, the pretty substantial hook that it was on because of the way in which, particularly because of the way in which licence fee income has collapsed since the Ryan Tuberty controversy. But there's that's only one part of the equation, though, is it, for yeah, the government, it, it isn't do, it? it does um, and it doesn't get them off the hook. I mean, it means that they have the money to, to clean the face of the organisation across the next kind of 18 months. But yes. like... Yes, well, yes and no. Sorry to jump in there, but it's put to me 
very clearly by some people in government who are involved in this that, okay, so there's 16 million being paid next week. Mm. There's 40 million they've been oh, promised for next year. Okay, and that co- comes in two tranches. The first will be given to them in January, February, when the two reports that are currently being conducted by the expert groups appointed by the Minister Catherine Martin. When those reports are published, RT gets the next 20 million. They, they will definitely get that. The next 20 million, which will be due next summer, is very contingent on progress being made in reducing headcount, reducing costs, and RT is to take out another 10 million of costs, and pursuing the reform agenda that Kevin Backhurst announced during the week. And I think it's much less certain that that money is automatically paid over. I mean, so, the government so has Backhurst has announced that he's looking immediately for 40, 40 redundancies out of a total over the next five years of 400, or, or at least uh, yeah, that would include retirements as well. But he's looking yeah, for 40 people 150 to go retirements, away. so you're looking at, a, at a 250 people who wouldn't have gone anyway. Yeah. But it's not easy to get redundancies in RTE. We know this because the last redundancy programme in RTE was a failure, essentially. They only, they only lost a handful of people, you know? Which of course, I mean, which of course, invites the prospect of if they don't get it through a voluntary redundancy scheme, do they, do they do compulsory? Although everybody said they don't, they don't want that, and it, it, there isn't much precedent for that in semi-sectors. Without getting into the nitty-gritty, much though, I, I quite liked it because I tend to go on about it a bit of RTE's internal problems on the political level. Are they going to have to confront this license fee problem? Yes. Okay. So yeah, you know, definitely. there's what, what is going on in RTE and the reduction size of the organisation and all the pain that will be uh, you know inflicted in. Montrose. That is one part of the story. It's the less important part of the story, to be honest. And the more important part of the story, it's obviously very important for people in RTE, but the more important story for everybody else is what happens to RTE. What does the future RTE look like and how it is funded? And I think what is going to happen is that government in the first quarter of next year, because that's when it will have to be done, will be faced with the very uncomfortable choice of either instituting a replacement for the licence fee, this broadcasting charge that people have been uh, talking about, perhaps collected by the revenue commissioners, but it would still be a new charge to an awful lot of people who would, who don't pay their licence fee at the moment and would be a political headache of very substantial proportions, or they will be faced with accepting that they're going to have to do uh, extra, direct do they, do they exchequer know this? Do funding. Do they accept this in their heart of hearts, do you think, Pat? So I, I spoke to a number of people some of whom were involved in it during the week and I think they're coming around to that realisation. And, and which would their preference be, do you that, think? They that don't speak depends. with one voice, I don't They do think. not speak with one voice. That Now, Catherine Martin said the other day, so the government reacted last year to the form of the future of media, the Commission on the Future of Media, whose recommendation was that the licence fee should be abolished and direct exchequer funding should, uh, should replace it. Um, government accepted all its recommendations Accept that one. And people at the very top of government, particularly the two main party leaders and the two guys who hold the purse strings, Michael McGrath and Pascal Donoghue, were resolutely against that last year. Catherine Martin said the other day that she would like to see this back on the agenda. So she's trying to nudge that argument uh, in government one way. My I'm told that the two leaders are beginning to see, or the three party leaders are beginning to see the extent of the political problem that might face them to introduce a new broadcasting charge in the run into a general election. But uh, Pascal Donoghue and Michael McGrath and their departments, their senior officials, remain resolutely against exchequer funding for reasons that finance ministers are always against, um, are, are always against 
further charges on the Exchequer. But not just that, because they believe that actually having RTE subject to an annual funding allocation from the government exposes them to all sorts of potential future political pressure and that that's not a good idea. Which is which is un, which is undoubtedly true, isn't it, Jack? I mean, in fact, the reality is that they're they're at the government's whim at the moment because they're going cap and hand for these, you know, big lumps of, of emergency funding. But, you know, into the future, if it's up to a government every year without any, you know, just in, the, in terms of the same way as any other budgetary policy, I mean, that's, you know, the arm's length principle is there for a reason between the public service broadcaster and the government, is it not? Yeah, but does it does it survive contact with the current situation and the politics of the current situation that Pat has outlined? Uh, and also, you know, the, the issue around a household charge removed from the politics or removed from the kind of the immediate political risk is like, is it is it is it right to empower the revenue to use the kind of coercive power of the state to extract you know your 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 license fee by another name and that's that's a kind of principled objection that i think people within government have had over over some time as opposed um, to the course of power of the state to uh, hold people into court and possibly send them to jail for not paying their television license is, is it that much of a I difference mean, you've got to pay a dog license you've got to pay motor tax mm-hmm. all, all those sorts of things what's happening at the moment is you know that people who pay the license fee are effectively paying for it twice mm-hmm. because they're paying their license fee plus their Money that they pay in tax is being used to fund uh, to fund RTE to the tune of whatever it is. So is this purely about political year? practicalities and doing something unpopular in an election year, or is there a kind of an ideological point? I mean, one could argue both, that, that funding honest, from yeah. the central exchequer means that you get away from one of the criticisms of the current system, which is that it's a flat fee, it's not progressive, mm. and regardless of your income, you pay the same amount um, for, for it. So if it was coming out of the exchequer, obviously that would be different, but some people, you know... it's a, To me, the the licence fee seems archaic, and the, I mean, and the new broadcast charge be a, seems be a political dividend in, you know... <laughs> in an election year potentially saying no license fee anymore you know it goes through it goes through exchequer well, uh, funding abolishing a charge is certainly, certainly popular, more popular right? than introducing I mean, one yeah. yeah so i mean there's 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 a there's a, a silver Another lining there for them. yeah exactly yeah i'll just get my own soapbox just for a moment here before we leave that subject okay, here we go. you you can uh, you can read my column on this subject in the irish times tomorrow Eagerly. Uh, of course you will which is really that there's a bit of a cart before the horse here because all this question of, I mean, I think Leo Varadkar at some point this week said the whole business was about uh, RT cutting its cloth to suit its measure. But it's about what is the bloody cloth for? What is RTE for in the 2030s, in 10 years' time when, you know, I don't know about uh, your children, my children certainly don't watch it um, and there's no sign of them watching it into the future. So what do you do in a multimedia environment where the whole concept of public service broadcasting, which goes all the way back to Lord Reith in the 1920s and the BBC and all that stuff, is falling apart all over the world, not just uh, not just here. Yeah. Here endeth... Look, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading your... Oh, you don't yeah. need to know. I've told What's you. What's the answer? <laughs> no, there is, there is no. If I had an answer, as as I always say with those kind of future media the questions, <laughs> if I had an answer, I wouldn't be sitting here. I'd be sitting in a very big house, probably somewhere in California. But I always do like to speak of money before we take the break because it gives me the opportunity to remind our listeners that we don't have a license fee or a broadcast charge or indeed any other subvention for this, from the state. So we no, rely. Arguably, what we do, what we're doing here, is public service broadcasting. Is it not? Uh, it will public service podcast. Public service podcasting. I think so. We look forward to our slice of the media charge, and uh, by the end of next to your Pat. No, we don't. We're only joking about that because actually we do value our independence and we can only maintain it with the support of you, the listeners and the readers. So go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe if you have not already done so and check out the excellent
excellent deals on offer there. We'll be back after this. And you're very welcome back. Jack, Gaza and Israel continues to dominate the political domestic landscape in a way that most international stories don't. It was There were debates, there were emotions in the doll today. Michal Martin was working hard in the Middle East, a lot going on. Yeah, well, I think most importantly, um, there was the uh, the the passage of, of Irish citizens or Irish passport holders uh, out of Gaza, which is something that I don't think the government was really under, under pressure uh, in, in any true sense. But the longer it went on, the stranger it looked. And the more it looked like, A, on the one hand, maybe we're getting punished for this, and B, that the government's decided policy of knocking out the Israeli ambassador and pursuing dialogue was not bearing any fruit. So because I think the Israelis essentially control the, the ability for people to pass through that crossing into Egypt. I, I don't know who, who do controls they? the Rafah crossing, and I'm, I'm sure there are different views on this, but certainly the view in government is the Israelis do. Okay. So that's... But why did he go to key. Egypt then to persuade them? <laughs> these these are the vagaries of diplomacy, um, but certainly the, the the like if they don't explicitly control it, I think as I say, certainly the Bund government is that they have a, a large Presumably, say in who goes on both the list. The Israelis and the Egyptians need to agree for it to be open. I suspect that is the case. But Isn't the reality of this is that it's complex to a level which is well beyond our can here in the studio in terms of who talks to what and who controls who and presumably there is Israeli-Egyptian dialogue about yeah, opening and, and, and closing the spigot the, the, the government, the government has been stuff. saying when it comes yeah. to these complexities trust us mm. we're not going to tell you much about what's going on behind the scenes the nature of the diplomatic toing and froing and the dialogues that are underway but our approach is one where dialogue is preserved and uh, and sanctified and you can't do that while kicking out the ambassador and, that was, and therefore it, having having your ambassador kicked out of, of and, Israel. And that made so the that's been given a timely very, very effectively at a kind of a key moment, didn't it? While a vote was taking place on the Dáil about whether to essentially get rid of the Israeli ambassador, Michal Martin was there doing diplomatic stuff in Egypt, in Israel, having tough conversations apparently, you know, with Israeli politicians about Ireland's position, which they're very unhappy about, going to the West Bank, talking to the Palestinian Authority. There's all kinds of bad stuff happening there as well. And we could see the effect. It was really, it was the argument in action, wasn't it? That, I that certainly, down certainly they'll argue it's that it's cause and effect. I mean, whether it is or whether it's down to one of the many different variables that we don't understand or see or are told about. But certainly, you know, it looks like it worked. And Mial Martin had a trip out that I think will go down as, 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 as a very successful one because of it arriving at the same time. Uh, and it also lessens whatever domestic political pressure they were under um, because all of a sudden the opposition are on the back foot and uh, they have been saying, what is the point of having the ambassador here? What is the point in engaging in diplomatic relations? You're not achieving anything. And obviously now the government can bat that back across the net and say we've at least secured the release, I think, of, of nearly all the Irish passport holders who so are there in were, Gaza. So there were, there were two motions before the deal. One was in relation to the ambassador. The other one was to refer Israel's current military operation operations on uh, the deaths of civilians to the International Criminal Court. That was also um, that was also voted down. I think yeah. the government made the point that that these things are already under investigation by the International Criminal Court. Yeah, and the government also decided to give some extra money to help fund the investigation, I think, uh, to the International Criminal Court. But both, mo- both motions were fairly comprehensively defeated in the Dáil on Wednesday night. I thought there was a kind of a sharper division this week in doll exchanges between government and opposition. Some of the opposition rhetoric, particularly from people before profit, 
uh, TDs about Israel was the harshest that I have seen. It was virulently anti-Israel, disputing Israel's essentially right to exist. Uh, Richard Boyd Barrett saying at one stage that Israel doesn't have the right to defend itself. Um, and uh, I thought the Sinn Féin rhetoric on the ambassador, on the criminal court was dialed up uh, a couple of notches. Mary Lou MacDonald becoming, you know, very passionate uh, in her contributions during the week while Leo Varadkar opposite her very much pushing back on Israel's right to defend itself, maintaining the government's position that that must be done in uh, uh, in accordance with international law and in many cases at the moment isn't calling for uh, a ceasefire, but at the same time, you know, Asserting the importance of maintaining diplomatic kind of coming, links coming and very shying close to calling away for a ceasefire. from shying away from the question of the international uh, criminal court, which would, I think, be a step that you know kind of set Ireland out of the even the pro-Palestinian European mainstream. Mm. And not and also interestingly, there was a, a the normal round of Tuesday morning plinths mini press conferences held by the opposition at Leinster House, and Gary Gannon, as uh, the Social Democrats Foreign Affairs spokesman, was was in that same vein, extremely strong, criticising the Tanishta for even going to Israel, for shaking hands with members of the Israeli government, um, you know, talking about an impending genocide, uh, very clearly saying he believed, and this was prior to the release of, of um, those Irish passport holders in Gaza, but saying very clearly he believed that Israel was punishing Ireland. So I think that there's there's something going on there as well in, in the opposition. And, what, and what, the what is going on? Well, I think, I think it's important to, to the base of left-wing parties to uh, that they they profess a very loud uh, pro-Palestinian stance, and does that include uh, denying the right of Israel to exist? I, I wouldn't I wouldn't imagine so. Um, but I'm talking more about um, so the Social Democrats, Labour, mm. and Sinn Fein, uh, particularly. You know, they would be competing. I think for younger left-leaning voters, and I think that it's very important for that that cohort of voters uh, to be very clearly aligned um, with the Palestinian side in this. So I think that may be playing out to some extent as well. I, I would be surprised if any of those parties edged up to to, to the position of, of getting close to denying Israel's right to exist. then feed though. into, I mean, the most important party in, 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 in all this on the left, obviously, is Sinn Féin. Is that, you know, is this another one of these moments we've seen them historically in the past where Sinn Féin had to were being very careful not to be outflanked, for example, by by people before profit. As I was the old phrase, no enemies to the left. Yeah, and this is the accusation on the question of the exp- expelling the ambassador. That yeah. was mm-hmm. that, that was turn, something yeah. that they had shied away from previously, but um, but but moved to as the volume was dialed up to their left. And uh, you know, as you say, we've seen that before. We saw with the water charges, a couple of other things, and. You know, there is you can't take politics out of this. Pol- you know, politics is is part of where people position themselves in this, and of course, they're looking around them. All right, we're going to move on as we do always on a Friday to uh, our choices of our articles of the week on IrishTimes.com. We should note that uh, many of our colleagues won uh, national journalism awards. Uh, not me or Pat though. this week. Oh no, not me either. So none of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We oh, uh, you're you're getting the the runs of the litter here today, <laughs> but we'll do our best and try and find some 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 better work uh, from across the the expanse. 
www.thevariousTimes.com. Pat, you are looking at, first of all, the news report of another significant uh, decision to step down from politics. David Norris will be leaving the Senate. Yeah, and I guess we'll be writing about this um, uh, at some stage in the near future. But um, so he announced this maybe characteristically in an interview with Trinity News. Um, he announced his intention to retire from the Senate in uh, in January. And he hasn't been well for a long time. He's, he's talked about that uh, himself. But um, he'll certainly be a loss to the place, even though he hasn't been around much in the last uh, couple of years. You know, uh, he's kind of a... I think somebody David Norris is is somebody who I think made a more tangible contribution to the welfare of his fellow citizens than most politicians manage. He ran for president in 2011, dropped out of that race, got back into it. The whole episode wasn't one I think that he would look back with in relish. He became quite bitter afterwards for a, for for a time, but I think then because it got very nasty. Reco- it got very nasty. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And um, but I think he recovered from that and kind of took his position as uh, you know, sort of a. I, I hate to use the phrase, but it seems justified in this uh, in this instance as a sort of a national treasure. But before before that. He made a real difference uh, in the lives of an awful lot of his fellow citizens, and um, with his stands on subjects st- which, in the, in the old on, phrase, on were not popular rights. nor profitable yeah, at the exactly. time. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh, and he, you know, he did it. Uh, I mean, it, uh, I'm sure it sounds ridiculous to longer, younger listeners now, but you know, he did it when at a time when he was basically Ireland's only gay, uh, at least. Ireland's only publicly acknowledged uh, gay. And uh, he did, I suspect, that kind of cost to himself in his own life. Now, of course, like all politicians, he loved the limelight, you mm-hmm. know, but... Uh, but uh, yeah, I'll be. Um, I'll be. I'll be yeah, no, he exemplifies away my, yeah. my, my highly mixed feelings about the rotten borough of Trinity College across the road from us here. That uh, extremely undemocratic electoral process, which got him into the Senate. But there's no other way that somebody like David Norris would have would have been a national representative otherwise. Yeah, and I mean, on top of on top of the the various stances that he's taken, he's just a wonderful character. You know, um, expressive and colourful and articulate and impassioned and committed and all those other things that enliven politics. So you know, he will be messed up. My, my choice is, is another wonderful character in a way uh, who I think is older than David Norris. Uh, in fact, he's even much older than uh, Joe Biden and that's the film director Ridley Scott whose new biopic of Napoleon is on its way to us, I think. Or maybe here already. It's certainly on its way to us, I think, in the next in the next week or so. Dermot Ferreter is writing about Ridley Scott in today's Irish Times. Ridley Scott was asked about a scene in the new film where cannon opened fire with pyramids of Egypt in the background and no such thing was historically possible or indeed happened and some historian took him up on this and he told him to and we're allowed to say this in a podcast which is great he told him to fuck off uh, <laughs> back to his history books and um, and, 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 and Dermot as a historian didn't, didn't he say didn't really Scott say something, said, said something like look it's just a way of showing that Napoleon took Egypt exactly in one <laughs> shot as opposed to having 10 minutes of explaining the more complicated way he did it I'm, I'm totally on 
Ridley Scott side with, side with that, whatever about what he said to the historian, which understandably upset Dermot as a, as a historian himself. This is not the way to be treating historians. But he ends, ends up then having a quite an interesting treatise on the relationship between historical accuracy and dramatic film. This, this is the problem with, with the historical films, though, as well, isn't it? But I think we just need to take a step back from it. Like, I mean, remember, they are dramatizations. They are. You know, they're like, not. I, I, I grew up thinking that Alan Rickman assassinated Michael Collins because of <laughs> well, if you remember on Michael Collins, there was a huge fight at the time because there's a scene in yeah. Michael Collins where a car bomb explodes a particularly arrogant representative of the British Empire in the courtyard of Dublin Castle. And of course, there were no car bombs, actually, during uh, during the War of Independence. But uh, Owen Harris, never afraid of a fight, you know, kicked up a big fuss about this and described it as provo-propaganda by uh, well, Yeah, by well, well wasn't the point that Owen Harris was making at the time, I think, was that car bombs were used extensively by the provos. And so in putting a car bomb, the car bomb into exactly, you were the creating a link between the provos and the IRA led by Michael Collins. And Do we really think Neil Jordan was doing that though? Or did it just make for a good shot? I would stand on my opinion that the Neil Jordan is not a Provo supporter. You know, I think that's uh, pretty obvious to me. Mind you, Owen Harris tends to see them where nobody else does. So anyway, <laughs> moving on, we can't really talk about Owen Harris for, t- for too long. It is 2023 after all. Um, Jack, you were reading about restaurants. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, it is food month, not just food week uh, in the Irish Times. It is food month where our wonderful team of food writers uh, pull together the, the best and the brightest of the uh, Irish culinary culture. Um, including a, a list of, I think there are seventeen restaurants I counted, up and down the country. New restaurants that you should that you should try. Mm, um, they look lovely, actually. Some and of them. Yeah. world's smallest violin begins to play. I'm I'm not in a position to try, as the owner of two young children, soon to be soon to be three. My social Ooh, life is exciting. severely severely you. curtailed. When, when, when are you due? Uh, early next month. Okay. My wife is due early next month. <laughs> yeah, I, I gave Pat the opportunity to say he wasn't showing, you're, but anyway, you're fucked down, Pat. <laughs> Yeah, so no restaurants for you. No, no restaurants for me for the no. for the foreseeable. Yeah. Um, well, isn't there always a case yeah. that restaurant journalism and food journalism is 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 pornography adjacent? Precisely where I'm going. <laughs> and news, newspapers in general, I think. And I have a kind of meta point here. I thought about it half yeah. five this morning as one of the kids woke me up with a, a kick to the face this morning. Actually, <laughs> um, you know, newspapers are, are about stuff that you don't see. Uh, fundamentally, that's the that's the original yeah. reason for them. And yeah. increasingly, they are about movies I don't see and books I can't read and restaurants I can't go to. But I enjoy the writing nonetheless. And this is a great expression of one of the best parts of newspapers, which is good food writing. And you know, there's I think there's very few things more enjoyable to read in newspapers than good restaurant reviews or actually bad, bad restaurant yeah, yeah bad, bad restaurant reviews, reviews yeah, yeah. We, don't, we, don't, we don't have enough of them I think well anyway Jack, what's your yeah. favourite restaurant uh, I am very fond of um, Eto uh, just near government buildings there and it's uh, Spanish uh, contemporary by the same people Una Mas down on uh, I can't remember the street it's on I, remember, I know where it is but I can't remember the name I of the street I have what his favourite restaurant is now Didi's in Baltimore I haven't actually been there but very good reliably informed it's excellent it's like 14 courses tasting menu you roll out of there mm-hmm. my favourite restaurant to show off here now is the Three Michelin El Calor de Can Roca in Girona in Spain which was best restaurant in the world for, for a few years I've been there twice for two special birthdays I hope to make a third special birthday ah, but, okay. we really uh, play, up to, play up to type on this wins, podcast sometimes yeah. don't we <laughs> that's it for today thanks very much to Pat and to Jack thanks to our producer John Casey our engineer JJ Vernon it all got out of control a little bit there towards the end but we will be back in a more restrained style very soon indeed